Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet here in the beautiful Eastern Sierra. I'm your co-host, Stacy, and with me is... Your other co-host, Christopher, and we're, as usual, joined by intrepid producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hi, Doug. Emma, what is Intrepid. I don't know. It just popped into my mind. It's, <laughs> you know, it's like stalwart and persevering keep, and, okay, gotcha. you know, keeps, keeps plugging along kind and of willing thing. to kick our asses when we need it, which is like every <laughs> single week. Uh, or, or like it's often used with explorers, right? The interpreted explorer, so and right. so, and you yes. we were just chatting about standing in glacial water in Zion. Oh yeah, that's National right, right. Park. So yeah, maybe that's where it came from because you, okay. you you were off having adventures. Gotcha. Yeah, are you are you refreshed after your adventure in the glacial water? Uh yeah, I was. Yeah, it was. Um, it was unusual. It was unusual to to be as disconnected as I was, and to be as present with my kids as I was it's you know, it's always a hard thing to kind of isolate right. your brain when you go on a on a trip and uh, I managed to do it so I was pretty excited good that's job awesome. that's very cool nice yeah well today we're going to go back to the past a little bit aren't we we are we are because we're time you know, travel time travelers <laughs> but no we're not talking about time travel books no we're not that Detroit. not exactly. we're not doing that, um, but we're we're talking about authors who were household names back when we were kids. Yeah, you know, like those those books that came out in the sixties and seventies and eighties that you know we would see in paperback at the grocery store checkout, or you know, my family had a subscription to Reader's Digest condensed novels, and so you every few months you get a book with like three different short novels in it, and often these names popped up. You know, yeah, and then so, they became like producers of miniseries, or you know, miniseries like that's what they yeah, call them. I, yeah, we don't call them that anymore. But <laughs> well, like the Thornbirds, remember the Thornbirds? Yes, that was a Colleen McCullough best-selling novel, and then it was turned into a miniseries, probably seventies or eighties or something like that. Yes. Right? But, you know, all these authors, you know, Jacqueline Suzanne, uh, Penelope Ash, Leon Uris, James Mishner used to write inch-thick books that were like yes. epic things about states, you know, Hawaii, right. Texas, yes. you know, right. Sydney Sheldon. You know, all these authors were were household names. You just saw them everywhere. Yeah. But, you know, over time, for one reason or another, some authors go on to become what we would call canon authors. They get taught in high school and college and university mm -hmm. and read and reread like Toni Morrison or someone like that. And then a bunch of these other names, they just kind of fade into the background. And it's like, well, whatever happened to? It's true. And they were prolific. Right. I Very mean, these were not people that took like three years between novels or, you know, they wrote all the time. It's almost like they were paid by the word, right? <laughs> Maybe they were. I don't. 
<laughs> it was also that time, you know, I, I was just doing a little bit of research on the bestseller list because I think that's it's just a fun rabbit hole to go down. Mm-hmm. You know, the 60s and 70s was like the twilight for Steinbeck and, you know, Agatha Christie, Daphne du Maurier. Their, their final novels hit the bestseller list during that period when we were little kids. Mm-hmm. And when that same time was the dawn of some other very popular authors like John Le Carre and Michael yeah. Crichton and Judith Krantz and Belle mm-hmm. Plain, who then went on to dominate like the 80s, 90s and early thousands. Right. Know. So, I mean, John McCray just died last year or the year before, yeah. and it was still publishing a book right up until he died. So, and Danielle Steele, she kind of came up a lot, and she's still she's still writing. Yeah, I mean, she's she's one of the few that are continuing to right, right. So, I just think it's 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 fascinating. It also is a kind of a glimpse at different types of literary genres and what was popular to average readers in the sixties is different than what's popular to average readers yeah. in the 2020s, you know? So mm-hmm. definitely it'd be fun, little nostalgic walk down memory lane. So, so listeners, I have to, so Christopher provided me with like a list, like I could pick from a list. <laughs> Well, no, it's not that you couldn't have done it yourself. You were just very busy. Well, it was very helpful because I wasn't quite sure that I was picking in the right way, but you set me straight. So, but you had your book picked before I had mine. So why don't you kick us off here and tell us about the author you chose in the book that you picked to read for this Okay. Genre. So, so um, I'll start off with like just a, a mea culpa. When I was a little kid, two names kind of popped up on the bestseller list all the time. Um, Alex Haley, who wrote Roots. Roots. And Arthur Haley, who was known for these epic industry topic novels. And I always thought that they were the same person because I was a little kid. I didn't really realize the, the, the separation of the names Haley. But um Arthur Haley is a very different person than Alex Haley, let me tell you. (laughs) A British white dude who wrote um, a a lot of different industry novels. He wrote uh, Hotel, which was made into two different TV series. That was his first big breakout bestseller in the 60s. He wrote Wheels, which was about the car industry, and Money Changers about bankers, and a novel called Overload, which is a thriller, you know, based on the energy industry, believe it or not. Um, you know, he just, he would tackle these different industries. He would spend two to three years researching it up the wazoo and talking to everybody he could. And then he would craft this thriller or suspense novel about it. Like what could go wrong? Right. Um, and so the book that I chose by Arthur Haley was his second big bestseller and it's airport, which came out in 1968, the year I was born. So, uh, there we go. You're such um, a baby. I, <laughs> oh, please. I'm only a couple years behind you. <laughs> uh, readers will probably recognize airport or readers of a certain age. Let's go ahead and say it. will probably <laughs> recognize airport as a movie. It was made into a movie a couple years after the book was published. It was so popular. And it was one of the first big Hollywood blockbuster, like blockbuster. disaster movies where they would get this cast of thousands, usually aging Hollywood stars like, <laughs> you know, Jimmy Stewart or Olivia de Havilland or, you know, these, these names who had well past their youth because there are a lot of good middle-aged parts in these books. Um, and they would have this 
epic disaster movie. And I won't give away the plot of the movie, but it went on to like get nominated for like 10 or 11 Oscars or something. And it kicked off like Poseidon Adventure and, and Towering Inferno and all these other 70s disaster right. flicks, including two more airport movies. There was Airport 75. And then my favorite, Airport 77, which I remember going to see in the Bishop Theater as a kid. And it's about a plane landing in the ocean and sinking down and will the <laughs> people get off. And <laughs> I was nine years old and my best friend went, went and saw it on a Friday night. <laughs> Two nine-year-old kids going to see this disaster flick. <laughs> it's just hilarious, right? So let's get back to Airport, which started it all. The book... <laughs> The book is really straightforward. It came out in 1968. As I said, you know, Arthur Haley really enjoys researching his topic and conveying that research in the book. So there's a lot of dialogue that is conveying information about how an airport runs. It's kind of like the day in the life of an airport. And what he's done is he's made up this this Midwestern airport. I kind of think it's probably like in Illinois somewhere or Kansas or something like that. And there's a big, big blizzard that's going across the plains. And the airport is being disrupted by all this massive snowstorm. And how do they get the flights off the ground and the flights on the ground? And there's one flight that has made a wrong turn taxiing, and it's gone into a snowbank, and it's blocking off uh, a runway. And just how do you <laughs> deal with all this different stuff, right? Um, and, you know, he as he's stepping you through the day in the life through the lens of this guy named Mel Beckersfield, who is like the, the manager of the airport, the guy in charge, you know, he's giving you factoids about airports, which, you know, I think is probably one of the things that attracted readers to Arthur Haley's books. You Mm -hmm. learn as much about it as you enjoy a story, such as like, you know, airports during the sixties and seventies were getting overcrowded because planes were getting bigger and they needed right. more space. And, you know, there were no longer these little genteel 1950s airports where anyone could walk out of their car and directly onto a plane, you know, you needed space. And that meant, you know, infringing on housing developments or what have you. And so, you know, noise became an issue and should houses mm-hmm. be near an airport or should that just all be where warehouses go and all that kind of stuff, stuff that makes you think, oh yeah, well now 50 years later, that kind of makes sense why airports tend to be surrounded by warehouses and not houses. Right. Yeah. Um, but he spends a lot of the beginning of the book setting up the different characters. It's a cast of thousands. There's Mel who runs the airport. His marriage is on the rocks and both <laughs> he and his wife are having affairs. This sounds very 50s, 60s, 70s, right? Oh yeah. Um, She's a kind of like a social climber in their local town and wants Mel to be more of a, a social butterfly and help them get in the society pages. Mel's brother is an air traffic controller who's like clearly walking this mental edge that air traffic controllers walk because it's just a high stress Pressure. job, um, which he describes in excruciating detail. Like he really, he's conveying this information to you, but he's also making you edge up to the edge of your seat because you really feel that tension of what it must've been like to be an air traffic controller, especially in the sixties when computers were just starting to really help out. There's his brother-in-law who is a hotshot pilot named Vernon and the two loathe each other. So there's this tension that he's setting up between the two because they're both involved in this airport. And this hotshot pilot is having an affair with a stewardess who gets pregnant So the issue of abortion comes up. So you're reading this book about an airport in 1968. And then there's this whole subplot about what abortion is. And like, he uses different characters to try and convey the different sides of the issue. I was just like, wow, this is kind of 
progressive. It's pretty. It sounds kind of heavy. Yeah. Um, it was really quite interesting. And then, you know, but it is 1968. So at one point, you know, Mel's talking to a female colleague of his and saying, you know, you're really doing such a great job. Someday you could become a lady executive, which, <laughs> you know, to our ears now is like, sounds like a kind of razor you would shave your legs with or something, but it's, it's <laughs> you know, at the time it probably was a little progressive. I don't, I don't know. And then, then there's this spark plug of a guy named Joe Petroni. Cause of course the spark plug of a guy would be Italian of um, course, who, who chomps cigars and he oversees all the airport logistics, you know, this kind mm-hmm. of tough talking, take no prisoners type. Who's like, we got to get that stuck airplane out of the snowbank. This is how we're going to do it. Throw the rules out the out the door and all that kind of stuff. And so he set up all these characters during this major snowstorm. Um, and all the other major airports across the country are shutting down because they can't handle it. And so they, the planes are all coming to this fictional airport. And it's just this pressure to get them all in and get the other planes off the ground and all this kind of stuff. So he kind of builds a suspense over time. And then the last kind of pivotal character um, in the story is this guy who's an old construction guy who's lost all his money. He's really, really poor. And they're about to be evicted. And so he cocks up this scheme to buy life insurance for himself that his wife will inherit and he's going to go on a plane fly over the atlantic and blow it up and then the life insurance will kick in and his wife will get like a quarter of a million dollars or something like that and so that's the other (laughs) driving plot of the suspense and you it's so utterly it's sometimes it's utterly bizarre because it's the year 2022 and looking back on this stuff you know like this guy like, would that ever get published today with a plot line like that right no i, I don't yeah. know i mean it would be definitely be different and and you know back then you could walk up to an airplane gate you right. could even walk onto the plane and wave goodbye to your friends and then get off before the plane shut its doors and today you just can't do that right so it's just this whole different world um but i will say it as much as he's conveying to you all his research and as much as some of the issues are very, very heavy and very big because mm-hmm. it's a big industry, it does get suspenseful, especially about halfway through. And you really are. I found myself like, let's let the soup on the stove burn because I need to find out what's happening by the end of this chapter. Right. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it, it was kind of fun and you could see why it got turned into a movie. Um, sure. You know, it's it's just a very different read in today's, you know, the post 9-11 see something, say something world, right? Yes. We saw this nervous, funny looking guy going through the airport clutching a briefcase and not letting anyone take it. And he's got no other luggage. Today, the guy would be mobbed and, you know, TSA right. would be all over him. Totally. So um, the plot would be... St- you couldn't write that plot today. Um, it'd have to be very, very different. So uh, as soon as you started like describing, you know, the plot of the book, I had visions of the movie airplane. <laughs> <laughs> as, as would anyone, as did I, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I love that movie. Right. And, it's, <laughs> and I think I remember somewhere hearing that airplane was based on this this book or at least maybe even the the movie of this book and yeah you know just taking every subplot to the to the nth degree yes (laughs) yeah 
<laughs> Pick the wrong day to stop sniffing glue. You could you could read that version of those air traffic controllers in the airport book. Oh gosh, had, Alex Haley had actually written two novels around airplane airplane disasters. So I think mm-hmm. airplane itself was was inspired by both of those novels, and it really was just the culmination of those disaster flicks of the seventies, right? Yeah. You know? Um. Real quickly, I will say critical reception of this book. It was a humongous bestseller, even though most critics didn't like it. And my favorite critical quote of it was from the New York Times, um, where one of the critics says, you know, as for formula, the possibilities seem all but inexhaustible with hotel and airport, which are those two first Mm -hmm. bestsellers successfully done. Can shopping center, parking lot, (laughs) city dump be far behind? So... (laughs) You know, (laughs) tongue in cheek. I found it. I would actually recommend it, but I would put a huge caveat. You're reading a book that's 50 years old. Yeah. The lens is very different. The language is very different. The way men and women interact is very different. And people still smoked on planes. So isn't that, isn't that the craziest thing? (laughs) Every time, every time I get on a plane now, I think about that and or anytime I walk through an airport, I think about how different it is now than it was when I was a kid, right? you know, and when we were kids, um, it's just such a different experience. And, and you wouldn't um, want it, right? I mean, I couldn't imagine getting on a plane with smoking these days. Oh, no way. I mean, it'd be just awful. It just, yeah. No. <laughs> but the light used to be up there right next to the seatbelt sign. Totally. Like you would wait for the pilot to say, okay, it's okay to smoke. And then people would pull out their Marlboros or Virginia Slims or whatever it was in 1960. And, and they pulled a little curtain. Like a little curtain was going to, like that was the, I don't know, <laughs> ridiculous. Well, so I don't my, know what they thought. That was my book, Arthur Haley's Airport. Haley was on the bestseller list frequently from the 60s all the way into the 80s. Um, and I would recommend the book. So what did you read, Stace? Well, I too chose from the list you gave me of <laughs> a, a very prolific, famous author named Harold Robbins. Right. And he's, he's a bit older. The book that yeah. I read is a, is a bit older, was written a little, you know, earlier. Um, and Harold Robbins was was born in 1916. He died in 1997. He was 91 when he passed. Wow. He wrote over 25 best-selling books. Um, he was, his books were frequently mentioned, mentioned in pop culture references. So in other movies, in other television shows, you, you hear references to his books, even though he was a high school dropout. Yeah, that's awesome. Yes. And so he also worked for Universal Studios from 1940 to 1957. And he started off as a clerk and he became an executive before he quit to start writing books. Wow. And one of the, one of my favorite references to his work is in, in this, I guess I'm dating myself too. Um, but there is a band called Squeeze, a British band. And in their song, Pulling Muscles from a Shell, <laughs> they they sing about a Harold Robbins paperback. Right. And really? um, yeah, isn't that cool? That sounds so very I, cool. <laughs> I love Squeezed, one of my favorite bands. <laughs> and I remember, oh my gosh, yeah, that's right. So I just thought that was <laughs> kind of crazy. But the the name of the book that 
I read, it's called The Dream Merchants, and it was actually Harold Robbins' second book. And okay. I think it was published around 1949 is about when it came out. And, and so, so, you know, you know Harold, Harold Robbins, Robbins is kind of thought of as being kind of a racy, you know, yeah. very yeah. risque stories and characters that do risque things. Right. But as you, you know, reading this book now, it seems tame. Yeah. You know, again, you're, you have to reference the time when it was written, right? Right. So the book, The Dream Merchant, really pulls from Robin's time at Universal. Okay. And uses kind of his experiences um, to tell the story. So the, the Dream Merchants is about two men, essentially. Johnny Edge, that's his name. What a name. Johnny Edge. Isn't that a great name for a movie producer kind of guy? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised someone in real life isn't using it. Exactly, right? And then his friend, Peter Kessler. So Johnny grew up in on the carnival. His Both of his parents are dead. He was kind of raised in the, the carny industry. Mm-hmm. You know, he was raised by a guy who ran the the carnivals and did all the hustles and it's kind of vague on how exactly Johnny and Peter become such good friends. You know, Johnny moves into the apartment building where Peter and his wife and his two children live. Mm-hmm. And he's he's a bit younger than Peter and Peter runs a hardware business. He's a, a Dutch immigrant a Dutch Jewish immigrant Mm -hmm. and um, he owns a hardware store and he's, you know, barely making ends meet. They live in an apartment building above the store and he and Johnny become friends and they decide one day that, you know, through some circumstances that they're going to start showing um, flickers, which is what they called movies. You know, back then. But these were silent movies. Um, they they become friends with this other Greek immigrant who decides that he they should sell snacks and he's going to sell the snacks at these flickers that they show. Mm-hmm. And it basically traces the beginnings of the movie industry. Oh, wow. And so that was, you know, really interesting. I had no idea about anything of how these movie studios really got started. And, you know, they started with these little two real movies, silent Mm -hmm. films. They could only be two reels. The people who made them were controlled by the, what they called the combine and the combine actually doled out the actual film, the actual celluloid. So they controlled how much movie makers, you know, how much actual film they could get to make their movies. Interesting. And then they controlled the projection machines and who would get them. And it was, it was really something. And then as the, the, the book kind of traces how they went from being these little production studios in little, little warehouses in New York Mm -hmm. to the big studios and talking pictures in California. Wow. And how Johnny and Peter form this movie company called Magnum pictures. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, they start making their movies in New York, but then when they decide, they find, they fight about going into talking pictures. Peter doesn't want to do it and making six real movies. Wow. So in order to do that, all the movie makers kind of had to get together and overthrow the combine. Overthrow so the that, people were controlling. Exactly. Yeah. So that they could make these six real pictures. Yeah. So, and then of course you have the, the femme fatale, mm-hmm. you know, who's, who's the bad girl. She's the villain and she, you know, she wants, all she wants to be is famous. Right. She wants to be a famous motion picture person and she does whatever it takes. You know, she's that kind of girl. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, so these scenes with her and Johnny, that are supposed to be like really risque for the time is kind of like, okay, that's not really, but for then <laughs> it was. Well, sure. Um, and so that, you know, it was, the characters are very intriguing. You, you know, you like the characters that you like, you hate the characters that you hate. Right. They're just like in, in um, airport, there are lots of different subplots. You have, right. Um, Peter's son who has his own issues and the, the love story between Johnny and Peter's daughter, Doris, who, you know, is, has always been in love with Johnny and just has always wanted to marry him from the time she was a little girl. But then the war intercedes. This is, you know, world war one. Oh, wow. (laughs) And so, you know, that comes and he, Johnny, I'm not giving away any plot, you know, twists or anything. He, he loses his leg and that, you know, so then him getting a prosthetic leg, you know, that's a huge thing. That was like in 1949, that wasn't, that wasn't small potatoes. You know, the artificial limbs were something very new and, you know, the technology wasn't what we have today, certainly, but, you know, they were expensive. It was, you know, it was unusual for somebody who, to lose a limb in a war to come back and have a prosthetic leg. So it sounds like this book, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it sounds similar to the Arthur Haley book in that it's like, it's this like 20,000 foot view of an entire industry spun into an epic yarn with all these different characters playing and interacting with each other and their suspense and drama and totally totally the yeah. only you know the only thing that i really didn't see in this book was humor interesting you know like i think now when you have these kind of sweeping novels you always have a little bit of comic relief mm-hmm. and that really did not come into play here at all interesting you know it was it was a pretty heavy duty story and did it keep you engaged? It, it definitely kept me engaged. You know, definitely did because it was, I mean, this was a, these were, I, I knew nothing about the history of, of the movie industry. I mean, this, I thought I knew about it, but not this far back. Right. You know, I mean, I think we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that, oh yeah, well, Charlie Chaplin made, um, <laughs> silent movies. And then, you know, you had Al Jolson doing the first talking movie and, you know, we all kind of, that's kind of common knowledge, 
but there's so much more to it than that. Right. And the other thing is that I kept having to remind myself that this, when this was taking place, we're talking the early 1900s. So when they had their offices, you know, of Magnum Pictures in New York, and they were just starting to make movies in California. And the reason they did is because there was space in California. That's why all these movie companies went out to California because they had the expanse and the land available to them to, to build huge sound stages if they needed to, or to film outdoors. They had all of that land with which to do that. And they didn't have that in New York. And I had to keep reminding myself, well, what's the big deal about Johnny going out to California? But then I remind myself, well, he's got to take a train. He can't, there are no planes, (laughs) You you know, he takes a train or a covered wagon or God knows what, but he's not going to fly a plane there. So, you know, it was a several day endeavor for them to get from one coast to the other. And um, so just like airport, the dream merchant was made into a mini series. It was was it? not a movie, but it was made into a mini series and it had all the, like the same people that were probably in airport. <laughs> <laughs> Such as, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the list right now. Mark Harmon, Morgan Fairchild, Eve Arden, Robert Culp. I don't even know who these people are. Jose Fer- 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 Ferrer. Ferrer, yeah. Robert Goulet and Fernando Lamas. <laughs> it's like an who episode. Who is not Billy Crystal, by the way. So, no. <laughs> Fernando Lamas. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that is, it's like an episode of The Love Boat, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, it's all these same people played these <laughs> miniseries through the whole 70s, right? That's awesome. Totally. We'll have to go look for this. I know, I totally want to look for this. Okay, so we have to do this together. We have to have like an, an airport dream merchant night. That's <laughs> awesome. Which listeners, Christopher and I are not adverse to doing. We would totally do this. <laughs> and then we'll watch all the airports together. Yeah, air, yeah, absolutely. The, we have to finish off with the airplane. No, but it actually know, sounds fascinating. It was it was really good and I definitely enjoyed it. And and I would pick up one of his other I would be interested to pick up one of the books that he wrote at the end of his career. Yeah. And just see how he evolved as an author, and especially as the times became more progressive. Right. You right. know, um, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was really good. It was really interesting, you know, just, just as I'm sure he intended, you know, there were characters I really liked, there were characters that I hated. I'm like, oh, not this person again, <laughs> uh, you know, um, it, and the plot moved really quickly. So each like section of time, he started with um, first person mm-hmm. narrative. The, mm-hmm. like, and I think it was it was either Johnny or Doris mm. telling like inner and their first person narrative kind of introduced the next section. Interesting of time. So so the, you know. It was really well done, really well crafted, and 
Well, if he's, um, you if, know, I see why he was so successful. Yeah, I mean, if he spent 15 years as a movie exec for Universal Studios, he he knows what goes into good story making, right? Definitely. So, yeah, absolutely. So, what was it called again? It was called The Dream Merchants by Harold Robbins. Awesome. And your <laughs> book was Airport by Arthur Haley. Not Alex Haley. Arthur Haley. Yes. Okay. I did get that right. Okay. I was a little nervous there for a minute. (laughs) So listeners pick, pick up one of those, let us know what you think or pick up another classic author from, from the sixties and seventies and let us know what you read and what you think about literature from that time. I think that would be fun to hear from people. I bet people have really strong opinions. I yeah. want to hear from you. Yeah. We both do. In the meantime, in. yeah, in the meantime, go get a refreshing drink. Uh, and we will be back shortly with our guest. Ample oxygen is a basic requirement for human molecular metabolism. Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for being here with us as our guest, Dan Holler, town manager for Mammoth Lakes, is joining us. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Dan. My pleasure to be here. We are so happy that we could finally get you on. We've been trying and trying, so we know you're so, so busy, and we're just really happy that you could make some time for us today. And right after your vacation, are you are you back into it or still? That's why you look so well-rested. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you're only a couple hundred emails behind, but otherwise we're good. <laughs> So when you go on vacation, is your strategy to check in on emails every day or do, or do you just like, are you that disciplined to go on vacation? And I am not. So I, no, I do check in, not necessarily every day, but uh, I definitely, I check in now and again, look at it and try not to respond to too many, but I do do some and issues do come up now and again, I do do vacations where I'm not able to, which is great. So no, I, I think that's a key piece. Yes, yeah, no contact vacations every once in a while are, are really valuable. But I'm with you, Dan. I'll often just check in um, you know, once or twice every day or so just so I don't come back to any big surprises, which I imagine in a town could happen. So, Yes. <laughs> so, Dan, let's, let's rewind a little bit. And if you could share with us and our listeners, what, how did you get to arrive in Mono County? What brought you here? You know, the, the job really brought me here, the, the management job here with the town of Mammoth Lakes. But it's been an area that I've looked at for years. I grew up in Wyoming, college in Montana. So the, the, the mountains, the outdoors has always been a part of my life. Uh, outside of seven years in Southern California uh, and then spent you know many years in uh, the Lake Tahoe area, Douglas County, Nevada, just north of Mono County. And then also some Grass Valley and the other side of the mountains there. But it was interesting while we were in uh, in Nevada at the time, the manager position in Mammoth had come open a couple of times. And it was one of those things you looked at in the past and said, hey, that'd be a really cool place to work. Uh, and just given the environment of the Eastern Sierra, uh, it would just be kind of neat. And then just through a variety of circumstances, was uh, offered the opportunity to come in as an interim manager back in October of uh, 2013. And uh, been here ever since. So it's been uh, eight plus years now. It's just been a great place to be. And, you know, it, it's the work is rewarding and it's just a variety of issues you get to deal with and impact on the community. And 
Uh, it's been a real good, 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 uh, good time being able have, to be have, in Mammoth. Having grown up in mountainous areas, are there? What's the? Do you see any differences in the Eastern Sierra versus growing up in Montana mm-hmm. and and Wyoming? Yeah, not a lot. Just in terms of like you know, kind of a what Cody, where I grew up, was. 5,000 plus elevation. So this is a little higher elevation. So that's a little shift there just in terms of your elevation. But as far as being rural, I mean, from, you know, we, we drove basically two hours to go anywhere uh, of, of note. So you happen to travel to do things like that. Uh, that's kind of a normal thing. I, I think the thing that uh, the, probably the most similar isn't so much the landscape in those areas. There's a lot of that. We were 50 miles out of Yellowstone National Park. Beautiful. Yeah. Types of, you know, just Grew up, you know, fishing, hunting, hiking, four wheeling, those mm-hmm. types of things. But I think it's more that I would I would call a rural culture, culture or lifestyle. Uh, it's, tra- it's a little bit slower, just in terms of dealing with people. And hey, you meet, you want to visit, you talk. It's there's relationships are important, uh, and that engagement in the community is important. We used to say growing up, you know, if you were doing something you shouldn't be, your parents knew about it before you got home. <laughs> True. Uh, there, so if you've grown up in a small community, that's there. And in, in this line of work, it's nothing to, you know, meet somebody in a grocery store, the post office or gas station, and you end up with a, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 minute conversation. And that's been true in some of the other communities I've been in smaller. And it's just part of that community connection. I think that uh, it makes the job both enjoyable and sometimes more difficult because sure. you know people that you're right. working with and dealing with on two sides of an issue, or like to say, a lot of them have th- at least three sides, if not more, right. uh, that you're working through. But I think that that rural environment, just that smaller community and the community identity, has been very similar to growing up, and it's uh, it's mm-hmm. living in some of those types of areas. And then each place I've been in has been tourism dominated. So that's the other side here, whether it's Tahoe or whether it was in uh, Bozeman, Montana or Cody, Wyoming, which is heavily tourism based. So that's just a way of life. Dan, for the uninitiated in our listenership, (laughs) can you talk a little bit about what a town manager does? I mean, you know, there's a town council and there's a mayor and probably a lot of us think, oh, the mayor does everything. But that's not really what happens, right? What what is a day in the life or a week in the life of a town manager? Sure. One of the fun things is I don't think there's any single day that's the same. So, (laughs) Uh, but I think, you know, you Structurally, you look at that and say you have the elected officials, the five council members, who are really the policy board for the town. Okay. Uh, a bigger picture stuff, more strategy. Uh, you know, where do we want to go? And then the manager is really hired by them. The town council only has two employees, and that's myself and the town attorney. Mm. All okay. the rest of the employees report under the town manager. So you have that structure. You're like the chief executive officer or CEO of the town. Right. Overseeing a variety of issues, be it planning, engineering, building, you know, capital projects. Uh, other cities uh, here, the fire department is a separate district, but we coordinate with them. Mm-hmm. Water and sewer, separate district, but we coordinate with them. Other cities, those are part of the city government. I've uh, been in both of those environments. But I think the, the day-to-day stuff is really a lot of, a lot of it. You know, you're dealing with budgets, you're dealing with finances, you're doing most of the work. I it's it's problem solving. 
Right. It's how do we move this forward? How do we achieve this goal? Uh, we have competing interests, uh, both internally to the organization and externally. Uh, probably the more not so much enjoyable side of the work is the neighborhood wars. <laughs> so, you know, hey, people sure. are blowing snow in my driveway. Uh, the lights are in my you know windows. Right. I, I don't want now that I'm here, please lock the gate. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, nobody should nobody should build next to me. Those types of issues, right? right. Uh, and then a little bit uniqueness to Mammoth is the engagement uh, at the level that it is here with the is with the national uh, government, the federal government, with right. the Forest Service, for example. Yeah, uh, we're right in the middle of you know the annual national forest and other places I work. We've dealt a lot with the Forest Service, but not quite as as the island that Mammoth is within the middle of the forest. Right. Which is a whole nother unique piece of uh, learning skills and development. And, you know, there is a pecking order in government and the feds are on top. Right. So, you know, we're so you have to deal with that. It, it works. Yeah. Is there any negotiating, you know, like, have you done, been able to do any negotiating with the feds that, you know, or, or do they always just shut you down? Is it always just yeah. like, no. Often it starts off with no, but uh, <laughs> you, you really, I think with the federal agencies, it, it's all about relationships and partnership. Yeah. Uh, when we started working with uh, the Inyo National Forest when I first got here, was big question was how do we get the Lakes Basin open early? And this year it might even be earlier, given mm-hmm. the weather we're having, and also keep it open later when their concessionaires are done, they're gone or they're not here yet. The forest service isn't staffed up to manage it. And so there was quite right. a debate over, Hey, you, you forest service need to put uh, restrooms up there, get them open, put dumpsters up there to take care of stuff. And the right. forest service goes, sorry, we don't have resources to do that. And right. I remember sitting down with the groups and going, okay, what's the goal? First question was, yeah, we want to get it open to people to go up and have a time to enjoy it. And if, if the listeners here in the area, that pre-opening and pre-closing type time frames is, in my opinion, the best time to get up in the lake space. Right. Oh, it's, it's, nice. it. it's beautiful. You get a mix of different issues. And anyway, it's just fun. Uh, so obviously I, I enjoy that stuff, getting out and hiking and biking around and doing that stuff. So, but, uh, so the real question is what was the goal? Get it open, make it clean, make it serve and so the question, well, what does it take to do that? And it was, I don't know, it's thousand dollars to put toilets and dumpsters up there going, well, if we're arguing over a thousand dollars, if I pay for it, the town, right. we pay for that. Do you have any issues? And you just tell us where to put this stuff. And they're going, well, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you took that, what is, you know, between us, you know, it's a relatively small amount of money. Right. Right. Put that aside and go, how do we meet the needs of our visitors, our local residents, the guests that we have here? And that was like, and, and so we've been doing that ever since. I yeah. started on a handshake and an email basically to make it happen. And so we'll have a meeting later in April to talk about the opening of the Lake Basin. That's great. And we'll be asking, where do we put dumpsters? Where do we put the, you know, little, the yeah. little blue huts? Uh, and as they get more, you know, year round, uh, restrooms up there, that'll reduce that a little bit, but it's those types of partnerships. You got to be able to build 
understanding they do have rules, regulations, policies they have to live within. Right. Same on our side. But it's really, how do you meet in the middle to solve those types of issues? Mm-hmm. And it's not really readily apparent to the visitor that, you know, Mammoth is different from that area, that it is a different governance right. structure over that land versus the town versus, you know, BLM or LADWP or whoever. It's So working right. together really seems like a really important strategy. Yeah, you really have to. And you're right. The I'll go from the locals up to visitors to whoever's here. There's no nice little, you know, dotted lines when you're up there hiking around that says you're now in the forest service. You're now in, you're, you're in Mammoth Lakes. Now you're in Mono County. Just, you look at the map, you've got the little dotted lines. That just doesn't exist out there on the ground. Uh, We we deal with fires that way. They, 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 they don't tend to respect boundaries either. Uh, (laughs) I said, Hey, keep, keep them out. But yeah. But so it's, it's that partnership work and there's things we get along really well with and we move a lot of things forward and there's other elements you butt heads on and, but you know, that walking in together. So you let the relationship allow you to do that. You know, and that yeah, you know, in the eight years that you've been here, Dan, you, you described the, the kind of the regular work as a lot of problem solving, which I, I totally understand. But that also implies that there's, a lot of accomplishments that happen along the way or are in progress. Are there right. any things that, that you've helped uh, school through here in the last eight years that you're especially proud of or excited about? <laughs> a, lot, a lot of things I think are, it's, it's, you know, so I don't know, you did the job is what have you done for me lately? So I think for coming, you know, it's what to do last week, but I think coming into the uh, organization that uh, wasn't, took a couple of years, but settling out the, the litigation that the town was in with the mm-hmm. yeah. that and really kind of getting that set aside, doing some uh, financing there that set that aside uh, that really helped just in terms of the town's finances. And then the overall just budget of the town uh, was very, very tight. Mm. It was contentious. Uh, and the process bringing into that, that has really gone away from a contentious nature. I think we have a process that works well and it's worked well in times of plenty, like right now. Mm -hmm. And also when things are really tight, uh, building a a culture internally to the organization that we're all going to get in the room and work through issues. Uh, Ultimately town council is going to be the final decision maker, but being able to walk in and have a budget process, it's a couple of long meetings and not five or six. And it's not pitting one department against another. Right. Uh, Yeah. We really are in this together as a team. Yeah. And you may get a little more this year to solve your issue. And then we somebody else next year. And one good example of that, we had a lot of deferred maintenance in the parks and rec side. And so we started setting aside $300,000 a year out of savings, if you will, or uh, extra revenue. And like the parks department was going like, what do we do now? Oh, wait, we actually got to go fix these problems and not just complain about them. It was just this mindset all of a sudden of going, oh, we actually have capital to go work with. Right. And, and we've done a lot. We've done a lot to fix yeah. that. So I think that whole culture change and the financial change has been really good. And then in the last several years, there's really been the shift in focus on housing. Right. Yeah. Which again, ongoing problem. The, the acquisition of the 25 acres in the middle of town. Yeah. A lot of work that went into that. And then this another month or so will be you'll see construction out there going on again. That's great. Uh, things. And then a lot of other just little programs like that. It's, it's stuff people don't see a lot of that 
It's the repaving of the MUPS. It's, you know, the play structure at Mammoth Creek Park. It'll be the community rec center that goes up there and watch social media when the big sprung structure goes up. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But given a couple of years and the people utilizing that facility will be overwhelmingly excited and just, it'll almost be like it's always been here. Yeah. Right. And isn't that how it happens? Like you you do, it's, it's like the new thing for a couple of months and then it's like, it's always, it's always been there. And, um, you know, it's that, what have you done for me lately? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, and we've done a lot of stuff that way. You go back and look at some of that stuff. I think when you make those types of systematic and uh, cultural changes in an organization are really significant and long lasting. Right. Uh, you yeah. build that, build that relationship. And the same thing, you know, I think just to work with uh, Mono County and the town, I think that's improved over time here as well. Uh, we'll be working with Stacy here real quick on childcare. Uh, another We're, growing issue. We already yeah. are. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, uh, taking over part of our work at, uh, the parcel, the, uh, affordable yeah. housing project. And then just recently, last within the last year or so, a lot of push on childcare issues and just what do we do and trying to get people together has been challenging. And so yeah. uh, we've leaned in that and say, okay, we will work really diligently to get a facility in place for childcare and we'll reach out and to And we will really diligently it. operate it. <laughs> yes. and, and so when you talk about the partnerships and seeing those yeah. types of things come together, that's really rewarding. It's It's partnerships that make a difference in your community. Yeah. You know, having quality childcare is a game changer for families. Yeah. It, it really is. So you look at those types of things and whether it's a recreation thing or whether it's with, uh, you know, public safety or it's streets or whatever, one of the enjoyable things about local government is you really do get to see an impact on the everyday life of residents. Right. And if, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was 20 years of getting sidewalks on main street. <laughs> yeah. Things like, but they're there. And now, now it's like, you see people using them all the time. It's like, as far as they're concerned, they've been there the forever. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, stuff like that. And it's things you really look at and go, yeah, that made a difference. And again, it's, you know, not me doing that, but it's, Myself, the team, the town council, the direction, the, the allocation of funding, the going after grants. That you bring this partnership together and you can sit back and from my perspective, look back and go, are, are people truly better off for the work we're doing that impacts, impacts their daily lives? Whether it's potholes and garbage and uh, you know recreation, it's all those little things that people really don't think that much about unless it's impacting them right in their backyard. Right. That, that makes a huge mm-hmm. difference. Uh, last thing I'd note was just, I never dreamed that we would be, you know, I don't recall the master's program on managing a pandemic with forest fires on the horizon. So I missed that course. <laughs> well, now you could lead it probably. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but <clears throat> the things we had to do to go through that, and again, stepping in and putting our community first and say, how do we partner with people, be it food bank or be it rent relief or be it making hard decisions and having to you know, stand there and defend them, rightly yeah. so. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. shutting down our tourism business. We know that's going to hit us financially. It's going to hurt It's going to hurt people's businesses. How do we step in and help? We did grants. We did a lot of things that way. 
And again, it was pulling people together in that unknown for so many months there. Yeah. But, you know, the one thing that you did and did such a great job of, you know, that I know in our organization, communication was such a big part of getting through that time. And under your leadership, the communication that the town, you know, had with the community, you know, weekly meeting. I mean, it was just it that was a study. It it really was. You you did such a great job. We yeah. end up with community conversations and we did, you know, mm-hmm. business roundtables and we did, yeah. you know, other, you know, type of things happening that way. But yeah, that's right. That Thanks. Yeah. And, that, and again, that was a team effort coming in and people, and there was a few of us in the emergency operations center trying to direct that. And it's making the best decisions you can make with the information you have. That's right. Um, that's yeah, the other aspect of my job is really used to dealing with ambiguity and we will make the best decision we can with the facts we have today. Yeah. Right. Not letting yeah. the absolute perfect be uh, get in the way of the good. Right. Right. Which is tough to do in the in these kind of situations, but you 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 learn that flexibility if you don't bring it in, right? I mean, we all learned to pivot. <laughs> the code word yeah. for the pandemic was pivoting totally. for many of us. So Dan, yes. a lot of this is a lot of hard work and a lot of mental acuity and, and, and time and effort. What do you do in your downtime in the Eastern Sierra? What do you enjoy about this place? Well, I enjoy skiing. So that's um, almost a no brainer. You know, <laughs> did you ski today? No, I did not today. Work days are a little tough, but I plan to, uh, Okay. Be up uh, tomorrow, April second. Be up and yeah, <laughs> top the mountains doing. Uh, so it's, it's definitely enjoy doing that type of stuff. Uh, the other thing is just hiking and being out, especially in the fall and the spring. Yeah, uh, just coming from mountain background and stuff. Those times, just either the flowers are coming out and it's just yeah. the beauty of it, or <clears throat> I really enjoy waterfalls. My wife and I have done several some vacations just going waterfall hunting, if you will. That's brilliant. <laughs> It's, they're just fun. It's just, just the dynamics of that uh, uh, power of a waterfall is just neat to me and the different types and stuff. And just a lot of fun. Uh, so the hiking time, the skiing side, uh, I've also been engaged. Uh, it's been a while now with the pandemic, but uh, for since I've been in Mammoth, uh, even before, I've done nine different trips into the country of Uganda and Africa on a missions trip. Actually, with the church out of Grass Valley, California, where I was at before. Terrific. Continuing that and continuing the relationship with some kids and other people there that we got to know. We worked with a uh, with an orphanage and then building some uh, buildings and building some churches and doing other stuff and oh. humanitarian work. That's great. But, uh, the nice part on that is that was one of those vacations where you have little or no contact with work. So yes. <laughs> <kind of nice. laughs> And if I did, it's like I couldn't do anything about it. So you're on your own. Right. Uh, (laughs) But uh, the other side of that is you talk about kind of just regrounding yourself in reality. You deal with a third world problems. I mean, you know, we're arguing over what color a building should be. And they're trying to figure out what they're going to have for dinner or if we're going to have a dinner. Right. And I think that was a real powerful and previous things, doing some stuff in Mexico and Latvia and some other trips like that, where you're seeing this almost abject poverty in some cases, Mm -hmm. dealing with that and helping and making a difference and engaging and just, again, that relationship building. But I think that really helps ground you. So I've really enjoyed that. And we're 
potentially uh, going to be able to make a trip this year again, uh, September. Oh, that's great. Fingers crossed. We'll see if that happens. Yeah. But again, right now, safety and everything else being a priority. But it's been a really positive thing for me to do that. And you get this other view of things. And what we, what we worry about day to day versus what they do, it really is a reminder that how well off we are yeah. in the Eastern Sierra Mammoth and United States in general. But I think that's always a nice. So those types of trips are really good. <clears throat> kind yeah. Of a, yeah. To yeah. Kind of re reground yeah. you and yeah. yeah. Bring exactly. you back to reality. Well, I bet, it, I bet it also brings more empathy and compassion to some of the more focused issues we have here where it's not, it's not that we're not third world, but there are a lot of people, you know, living out of their cars or housing challenged or what have you. So you, it gives you that lens to help deal with those issues locally. Right. It, it really does. You do look at things differently. You look at your own finances and budget differently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, I think it does help you to be one more compassionate, uh, they're more truly being, have empathy and more giving uh, right. and, and understanding right. uh, the issues that we deal with. It does really, I, it really does help in those areas. That's terrific. Sure. On the other side of that, the fun stuff we like to do now and again is we try like every fifth year of our uh, wedding anniversaries. It's, we just hit 35. So, uh, but trying to do something big on those is we've like floated the Grand Canyon. We've done some cruises. We've done some other, I mentioned the waterfall tour up to the, through the Northwest and into Canada and stuff like that. That's so brilliant. getting out and traveling like that has been a real pleasure too. Yeah. I agree so, with It's that. so nice that we can do that again. Like yes. We're starting to be able to do that again. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's awesome. So, Dan, we always ask ask our guests, what are you reading now and what do you like to read? So let's talk about books. All right. So we'll set, set all the email aside for the time being. Yeah. <laughs> email does not count. <laughs> but uh, well, a couple things. One, reading a book right now is actually through a men's group. But uh, Tim Keller's book, <clears throat> The Prodigal Prophet, a study about Jonah. Mm-hmm. That's been really good and diving in and again just looking at almost some of the same issues, you know. It's 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 mercy, it's judgment, it's it's caring about others, it's changing a culture, all those types of things. So that's mm-hmm. been a really good read, and we're in the middle of discussions with that. That's great. Um and then kind of a relaxing reading. I really like uh, cozy mysteries, just stuff that's easy. I don't have to think too hard. Yeah. Uh, reading one right now called Ready to Fumble, the most unlikely detective. Uh, Christy uh, Barrett, just simple reading stuff. And then Steve Damari does a whole series on uh, murder at the fill in the blank, the book fair, the high school, mm-hmm. kind of a little murder, murder mystery thing. And the same detective gets carried through it. So I enjoy those types of things. Just finished up a 10 book series on the, uh, what is it? The Apple Orchard Mysteries by uh, uh, Chelsea uh, Thomas. Just again, easy reading stuff. It, it helps me relax. I can yeah. I, I just I can set work aside and other things and you can read, you know, for 10 minutes or an hour and a half. And it's just it's very relaxing from that perspective. It is relaxing. I'll totally agree with you. Stacey and I have talked about a flavor of this before on the podcast, you know, especially during the pandemic. A lot of us had a hard time focusing. There was a gazillion things happening. And there's a reason these these things are written in series, right? These genres that they hook you in and they're very simple and they very often do the reading for you, right? And yeah. then you're at the end of the book and you've got this, you've enjoyed a story and you feel accomplished and you pick up the next one like a potato chip. 
and you yeah. know what to expect and yeah it's just, yeah it's, it's, and they carry over you know the characters carry over i like that right but i also do some more i'll say more of the thriller type uh used to be like the tom clancy books or something uh, mm-hmm. i call it jc ryan does one anyway kind of that spy thriller or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it uh stuff like that or the Similar to those. I haven't done that in a little while now, but that's just another genre for easy reading stuff. It's really nice. And yeah. So, so do, you, do you try to figure out who did it like before the author reveals it or do you just kind of let it happen? I just, I just let it run. Because <laughs> then you ask me to think hard. <laughs> <laughs> I got to start turning all the, all the pieces together. It's like, yeah, I'm just, just, I'm just going to flow with the reader. Uh, with the, with Excellent. The just let it flow through. And it's, it's, yeah, I, I enjoy those. And so it's, uh, I can say I like it too, because you can pick them up. You know, you can miss it for a few days, pick it up or whatever. I do kind of, you know, a little Kindle reading thing, but yeah. you try to say, okay, how many days in a row do I have a reading something? You know, so. That's important. Yeah. That's important. Yeah. 30, 45 days in a row, and then you miss a couple. You go, oh, man, got to start over. <laughs> well, we'll have you join our summer reading program at the library. So, so uh, Dan, that was Tim Keller's Prodigal Prophet and then uh, some mystery series, Ready to Fumble, the yeah. Steve Damari's Murder at the Wherever's the Apple Orchard yeah. Mysteries, and then, right. and then some thrillers. So you've got quite a, quite a bit of a book pile going on, even if it is digital. Yeah. That's yeah, and great. I've got a lot awesome. of paperback books at home as well that I have and I'll read through and different ones and some like the Tim Keller. I've got several of those out there that I'll pick up and read and just over yeah. time. But yeah, it's, it's a stack there. But it's uh, and then traveling, you know, we'll do a uh, you know books on tape or something indoor right. reading. But yeah, oh, I do a lot of audio books traveling. I know you do yeah. too, Stace. Yep, yeah, I love them. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, my my wife likes a lot of the. Uh, uh, it's kind of like the it's the it's historical fiction. Yeah. So travel yes. together, listen to a lot of those and stuff and different things that are out there. So I get it. I'm a history fiction read. There you go. <laughs> well well, Dan, we're really pleased that you were able to take this time and chat with us today. I know it's it's always a busy day at the town. Um, <laughs> but thank you for, for making time for us and our listeners yeah, today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh it's thank you for the invite and uh, glad it worked out to get on the podcast. This is great. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell your friends when we reach out to invite them too. Like you're gonna have fun. Go chat with these two. <laughs> yeah, it's nice, yeah. <laughs> and listeners you're going to have fun too thank you for joining us for another episode of the oxygen starved podcast remember you can follow us on instagram at o2 starved and we would love to hear your comments and questions there as well as find us on our faith our website oxygenstarvedpodcast.com where you can listen to the episodes if you don't already follow us on in your major podcast platform apple spotify all the rest um subscribe tell us what you you like or don't like about the podcast or tell us what you're reading in the meantime enjoy the spring as it unfolds across the eastern sierra and you'll hear from us again in a couple of weeks bye thanks for joining us here for oxygen star our outro music iron bacon is composed and performed by kevin mcclaud in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.